Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and today it's a real pleasure to welcome to the show James Renshaw to talk about his new book, In Search of the Romans, which is out this year from Bloomsbury. James teaches classics at Godolphin and Latimer School in London, and In Search of the Romans follows his other textbook, In Search of the Greeks, also published by Bloomsbury. Both texts are designed for high school students, but I believe they serve equally well as a thorough, and highly entertaining introduction to the world of classical antiquity for any curious reader. Combining interactive design and engaging writing in search of the Romans is a delightful journey into Roman history, politics, culture, as well as a unique look at everyday life from Rome's mythical founding to the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the late 5th century. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I'm delighted James could join us today to speak about it. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a real pleasure to be here and talk with you. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to, to diving deep into the book. Um, in Search of the Romans is a companion piece to your earlier book, In Search of the Greeks. And this is a great odyssey into the world of ancient Rome. But I do want to start with your own journey into the classics and what inspired you to become a classics teacher. And then also how the idea for this series, I hope it's a series that will continue, of In Search books came about. Well, thank you. I mean, I was very lucky at school uh, from a relatively young age to study Latin, which was terrific. Uh, And I had a succession of uh, great teachers through my school days. Uh, I would mention Mark Greenstock and I would mention Andrew McGregor, but probably most famously James Morwood, if anyone's ever studied any Latin or or ancient worlds. James is quite a well-known name. He he sadly died about two or three years ago. Uh, And he was a big influence as a student and then became a, a good friend and a mentor to me. Uh, I studied classics at Oxford and I probably, like many graduates, when I came out of university, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I had the great good fortune to be offered a job at Sydney Grammar School in Australia, which being a cricket fan and someone who loves going to the beach <laughs> was, was a particularly great thing. And, and there was, it's a very good school. It's, a, it's got a good classics department. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this a go and try and work out what I want to do with my life. Um, and I realized it took me a while that actually teaching was what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but also, I think I felt when I left university that, you know, classics was an itch that I hadn't fully scratched yet and that, that there was more to do. And how right I was, because the, the more I've gone on, that the more uh, I've explored my own ignorance, I guess. Uh, so that's how it's come about. Um, so yes, I, I've done In Search of the Greeks and In Search of the Romans. Uh, now these are both actually second editions with Bloomsbury. Um, and uh, do you want me to go into how they came about, or do you want? To come yes, to- please, because I, I, I think it's a really interesting format. Um, and we don't often on the show get um, teachers at the high school level, so I, I'm, I'm intrigued by by how you pitch the book um, for your your own students. Well, I think that's a really good question. 
I think that I'm going to be careful what I say here because there are many wonderful academics out there who are brilliant teachers, but either because they don't want to or because they don't feel very competent in doing it. I think that there are a lot of fantastic academics out there who struggle to journey with students into a topic from the first rung of the ladder. Um, Or actually, they just think, actually, I want to be talking about Virgil or Thucydides in in great depth. Um, But it seemed to me that there wasn't much out there to just get people started and give them, I I like to think of both the In Search of Books as as going to kind of an Everest base camp. I'm not taking anyone up Everest, um, but hopefully I'm I'm taking them to the base camp and, and I'm passing them on to the Sherpas and the professionals who can take them further. Um, So I think that's the philosophy of the books. And I think also that classics, meaning both the Greeks and the Romans, can be quite intimidating to the outsider. I think there's lots of terminology uh, and there's lots of kind of quotes and someone thinks, oh, I don't really belong to that. And I wanted to break down those barriers, if you like, and, and, and make this was very accessible. And I, I should say for listeners, um, the book is really a beautiful, uh, has a beautiful design and layout that's very approachable with lots of photographs and pictures and maps, um, as well as all of the suggestions you have for further reading, um, particularly in the in the primary sources. Um, did did you work with the designer, or how did how did how was that collaboration? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to give a huge shout out to the team at Bloomsbury academic uh, and my department uh, Bloomsbury classics and archaeology they just really are very imaginative uh, I think we had about six different options for the cover and and uh, I took a straw poll amongst some of my students but uh, they came up with some great ideas for that um, I think maps are very very important uh, I think again getting people to visualize or be able to, to work out where these places are that we're talking about is really important um, in terms of images, it's a mixture. Plenty of them are on my own photos. So that's been a wonderful excuse to go to Italy if I'm doing the Romans <laughs> and Greece if I'm doing the Greeks or other parts of the Mediterranean. Um, and where they're not, then the team were fantastic at um, going to museums or where, wherever and uh, procuring those. So, yeah, very lucky. And, and I do have to ask you, you brought this book out in the middle of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And so you have been teaching your students remotely. And I was really charmed by you telling that you're teaching the students about ancient Greece and, and Rome via Google Meet. And you um, have transitioned your popular ancient world breakfast club onto a podcast. So that's a really fascinating fusion of ancient and super modern um, problem. That you're that you're struggling with. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that's like and and how you feel the classics bear up in uh, both the pandemic and the digital age. Yeah, that's a great question. I, actually, I should say that the book technically, maybe in the UK only, it was launched in December last year. So we got in ah. just ahead, probably just about the time that COVID nineteen was emerging. I think <laughs> uh, in the world. Um, but um, hopefully, my book will be uh, of greater benefit to the world. But yeah, I mean, how has remote teaching been? It's been a huge roller coaster. Uh, we were all thrust into this. I'm sure it's been the same in the US. Um, I think my students have been extraordinary. I, I don't know if any of them will ever get to listen to this, but um, it's been such a pleasure to work with them. And it's been massively challenging for everyone. But 
you know, they have been terrific and hardworking and, and really trying to pull together. We've had a lovely staff community. We've had staff well-being newsletters, people writing quizzes each week and sending in bits of art and things like that. So I think as a school, and that's important, we have maintained uh, and diversified our sense of community. Um, in terms of classics, I mean, on the one hand, one might think of classics as an old subject, but I always say as well that, that these people were, were very, very inventive. Uh, they were great inventors. They were thinking around problems themselves. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we studied them. So in some ways, I think it's uh, classics stands out very well in those circumstances because we go back and study people from the past who had to be inventive or, or, or were, you know, developing new ideas and new things. Um, and I think um, we're very lucky as a subject in that things are moving on technologically. Uh, it won't be long before we can all uh, virtually walk around the Colosseum. I think you probably can do that, actually, or about around the Parthenon in Athens. Those sorts of facilities are already there. The images mm. that we already have, photographs, um, means that um, we really do um, you know, great facilities there for, for teaching children. And these topics are endlessly fascinating. So it, it's really not been a, a problem in terms of, I think, reducing classics as a subject any more than any other subject has had a problem. I see. I want to go back to your, your um, idea of your book being a, a base camp in Everest and you're going to pass your uh, fellow travelers off to the Sherpas. And I think in your case, the Sherpas are the um, primary sources in Roman history, which, which are quite, Roman history is at a point when there are beginning to be historians we can rely upon uh, to, to tell us things that happen. Um, would you go through those those primary sources with us? And I, and I wonder if you have a favourite historian. Oh, well, a favourite historian is <laughs> different from question from a favourite Roman historian. Um, yeah. But you're absolutely right. I think um, in terms of Sherpas, I think I'm thinking of university academics as well, both you know, help, right. helping mm-hmm. students engage with those sources. Um, I, I should definitely, I mean, at the moment I'm teaching a Greek history course and the person I'd most like to meet from in, in history is Herodotus, the father of history. Uh, we won't go there today, although I'm very happy to spend many hours talking about him. Uh, I'm also teaching a lot of Thucydides. And the reason I mentioned those two, though, is that they're both writing uh, about Greece in the 5th century BC. Uh, and they are very much models for the later Roman historians who come along. Um, so that you, we're going to talk about this, I think, but but the Romans model themselves hugely on the Greeks. Um in terms of Rome, uh, we have this great narrative from the Romans of their early history, but really there's not very much at all before 300 BC. There's not a huge amount before 200 BC, uh, certainly by Roman authors. Uh, and then we get into the, the, sorry, before 100 BC, I should say, really. Um, and then we get into the first century BC and, and things really do uh, switch on in no little part because of the Greek influence at that point. Um, and so I think Mary Beard, who is someone I hugely admire as a Roman historian, I think she has said that the, the period of Cicero, so let's say about 65 to 43, I think he dies, uh, BC, she thinks that's the best documented period of history before the Italian Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many letters being written, we've got all of this day-to-day 
you know, information exchanging between Cicero and his friends, but other sources as well. We get other uh, historians emerging. Um, and then what happens a few decades later, by the end of, of that century, if you like, a little bit earlier, we get this huge flourishing of inscriptions um, and epigraphic evidence. So I think one of the problems we always have as historians of, of, of uh, the Roman world is that it's very much top down. It's told essentially by highly educated, wealthy men. Um, mm-hmm. And how do you know what the experience was like of someone who wasn't in that uh, small, very small uh, group? And, you know, we have to work much harder for that. Inscriptions, um, particularly epitaphs on tombs, really do give a voice to, to ordinary people. So, um, yeah, first century BC, it, it really um, lights up. I haven't answered my favourite historian yet. I will come to it, my favourite <laughs> Roman historian. But I think before I do that, I think I would want to say as well that it does ebb and flow. So we have a huge amount of information from, well, the, the first century BC, the, the first century AD, from written sources. And actually that diminishes quite a lot in the second century AD. Um, we don't really have a, a detailed historical account of that era, um, certainly not until the end of that century. Uh, and then again, we have big gaps in the third century. And we get later, on, once we get into the fourth century and we get early Christian writers, we get a lot more information. So, uh, you, you know, it's certainly not uniform. I think you probably, your favourite historian, I, I mean, I, I'm going to go for Tacitus because he is the, uh-huh. the great Roman historian, isn't he? He's deeply cynical. I, I think there would be a kind of c- cynicism Olympics between him and uh, Thucydides on the Greek side. Um, but he, he, is, um, he would be very good company. Um, and he is a brilliant writer. And mm-hmm. I think that we should be aware that, that good history writing you know, requires very good writers as well. He's famously pithy in, in his use of language. Difficult to translate, but but very much um, worth it if you manage to do so. Mm-hmm. And let's let's then um, get into the get into the the meat of the book. Um, and you begin at, at the beginning um, with the founding of Rome. Um, and one of the things I loved about your book is the way you combine history and myth and legend and even sort of gossip uh, into the whole history. And you start right away with the 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 case of Rome's foundation myth or myths, um, which kind of set the tone for the rest of the empire's history. And I wonder if you could walk us through these and give us a sense of how accurate or or, um, factual they are as opposed to fictional. Uh, Well, this is the $64 million question. (laughs) Um, And no one really agrees. Uh, you say they set the tone for later Roman history, and I think later Romans, particularly, say the Emperor Augustus, he'd be delighted to hear you say that, oh, because I think. But well, I but he, I think we have to be careful here because a lot of these early myths and legends were certainly, if not created later, then embellished and used later, um, and so I think that we can look at the archaeology of early Rome the early legends and the early myths probably tell us much more about how later Romans liked to see themselves than what actually may have been going on. Um, so, and I think that's true of foundation myths throughout all societies that, that the foundation myth, one is 
perhaps less interested in whether or not they're literally true and more interested in what they're actually saying about the values of that society. So the Emperor Augustus, I think we'll come to, he's very keen on going back to the the good old days of um, Romulus and these early Romans and the early Republic. And that is a motif. Cicero does the same um, a few decades earlier. That Mm. you know, it's that thing that we see in every human society is, you know, we're not as good as we used to be in the good old days. Things were simpler then. People were more honest, more decent working. Uh, you know, life was simpler and why can't we go back to being like that? And we, you know, we, we hear that today and the Romans were past masters at doing that. Um, so it, it's a really difficult um, area to go into. And I think, I wonder actually now whether I should have, I focus first on the legends in the book and then talk about what the archaeology teller tells us. I wonder if in the third edition I might go the other way. Um, mm. Because archaeologically, um, we don't get an awful lot about Rome before 300 BC. Um, you know, it's there. Uh, there is this interesting um, inscription that's found dated to, I think, the late 6th century, which has the Latin word for a king on it, which roughly... Uh, which would actually tie in very neatly with um, the idea that the the early Roman rulers were kings and then they threw out their kings in Mm -hmm. 509 BC. Now we should, again, later Roman historians um, are writing their history with Greece in mind. They looked to Greece as this sort of older brother to look up to and admire, but also to try and knock off their perch. And so Mm. it's probably not a coincidence that Roman historians come up with the year of 509 BC when we know historically that Athenian democracy was basically invented in 508 BC. So it's like, oh, we got there just before the Greeks did. Um, And I think, you know, you can, you know, uh, scholars, and this is where I'm talking about, you know, me handing people onto Sherpas. This is is not something I'm an expert in. But um, I just am able to kind of reach up and find out enough about everything and say, go on, go and find out about more about that. Right. Um, so I think that there's a lot of um, wishful thinking um, and, you know, the creation of a history. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not some, you know, truth in it. Um, and where historians differ or modern historians of ancient Rome differ is, is kind of how much truth there is, how accurate it is. I think the analogy I always like to make, and I don't know how much for American listeners this will resonate. I don't, imagine in America they're familiar with the stories of King Arthur um, mm-hmm. in in Southwest England, who is this kind of mythical slash legendary king. All these wonderful stories about Guinevere and the knights and all the rest of it. Now, and the Round Table, of course. Now, you know, th- the thought is that there may have been a particularly noble leader who had a particularly um, conciliatory and, and uh, democratic, if you like, approach, including all his knights, and then a whole set of legends were hung upon this character. So I think that's probably the best way to approach the early Roman legends. Um, and also to keep reminding ourselves, well, what does this say? So if you take Romulus and Remus, uh, probably your listeners will be familiar with that one. They They are uh, spared as you know from death as as babies well that's very common we get that in all of these foundation myths across the mediterranean world and beyond uh they grow up they're probably good mates until they have to found a city and they fall out over it and romulus kills remus pretty mm-hmm. brutally 
um, for jumping over his walls. They have a sibling quarrel and Romulus kills Remus. So on the one hand, it's a kind of horrendous thing that Rome, this great city, is founded when a brother kills his brother. Um, mm. But then you can say, well, what does that tell us? It tells us, or we, one way of interpreting that is that actually not even ties or blood are as important as defending your city. Mm-hmm. That, you know, patriotism, it comes above everything else, even your relationship with your family. Um, and I think those are the ways that are, it's really interesting to try and read Roman history, perhaps not taking it too literally at that time, but thinking these stories were very important to later Romans. And, and why is that? And am I right in thinking that um, one version of the story is that Romulus and Remus are the uh, children of a Vestal Virgin and the god Mars? Yeah, that, that, that's the main version. That yeah, it's yeah. the main version. Okay. I mean, you get lots of these stories in Greek myth, and if you go into Persia as well, of you get a, a god um, basically mating, let's put it that way, shall we, with a, with a, a mortal <laughs> Um, so, and then you have a look at the other um, one, and you've got Aeneas, who is the sort of founder right. of the Roman race, and his mum is Venus, and his his dad is Anchises, who's a man. So you get the the this man, uh, you know, mating luckily with the goddess of love, um, and actually, you know, that tradition goes all the way back into the Homeric hymns of the sixth century BC in Greece, of this very racy poem about the seduction of Anchises by Aphrodite, as she is. So um, we have that sort of fusion of God and, and, and mortal in, in both those foundation myths. And is it, it's true, isn't it, that Aeneas is um, one of the few Trojans to escape the, the fall of Troy. Um, and he, so he sort of brings that whole world with him to, to mainland Italy. Is that yeah, that's right? absolutely right. That- I mean, I think, again, we have to, we have to kind of work backwards um, this is not right. this is not a historical story. Um, the, you know the historicity of the Trojan War is another whole topic. But again, it may have been it probably was based in some original warfare in the the late Bronze Age. Um, mm. But you know these characters like Achilles and um, Agamemnon and Aeneas they're not true in the real sense of the real people who have lived. Um, but the tradition has in the Iliad has. Uh, a prophecy that the one of the Trojan princes is going is Aeneas. He is going to survive the war, and he will lead the Trojan race to safety, or the rest of it afterwards. So this is where again it becomes very interesting because that's just there in the Iliad. There's nothing in the Iliad about the Romans or the future Rome because Rome was this kind of uh, small little town in the middle of Italy, no one ever heard of at that point. Um, you know, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about. The, the author of mm-hmm. those poems. What then happens is that the as Greek culture develops in in, in Italy and southern Italy particularly, um, the Greeks like to give foundation stories to other places they go to. Somehow there was a tradition came up that that this guy Aeneas, what had happened is he'd come to Italy and surviving Trojans there, and then if you like, you know Roman. Uh, mythographers, historians, propagandists, however you want to think of it. But I think Romans wanted to associate themselves with the high culture of the Homeric poems and of the Trojan War. They didn't have a flourishing Bronze Age in Italy. They didn't have that long tradition. And so essentially, Aeneas gets sewn on to the Roman story and he gets sewn on to the Romulus and Remus story by being an ancestor of, of those two. Right. And and um, 
This brings us, I think, neatly to the Etruscans, mm-hmm. um, which you cover very well in your book. And for, I think, the the reader who doesn't have a huge grounding in the classics, the Etruscans are, are slightly hazy. We're not really sure who they are. And I wonder if you could clarify that for us, you know, who are they and and how do they contribute to the to the development of Rome? Well, it's a great question. I, I think the only thing I'd qualify there is that they're slightly hazy to everyone. <laughs> you know, even scholars of the Etruscans find the Etruscans slightly hazy, and if not more so. Um, we don't and know. Is that, why is that? Well, is I mean, the, one way of saying that is that the Romans so successfully wiped them out slash absorbed them, or overtook their lands, that essentially... Um, they didn't leave much trace behind. I believe that they largely built in wood, um, so mm. that there's less evidence of of their towns. But actually, uh, I mean, the, geographically, the word Etruscan is linked to Tuscany. I'm sure many of your listeners either will have been on holiday or would like to go on holiday there. It's wonderful food. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the world. But that's where the Etruscans come from, Tuscany mm. uh, and Umbria. Um and uh, you can still, they were originally, so it's essentially in the 6th century BC, they were the dominant culture on the Italian peninsula. I think that's the simplest way of putting it. Um, they weren't one state. There were probably about 12 city-states in their league. So if you go to Perugia today, that's very much an Etruscan city, and you can still see Etruscan ruins there. There are stone ruins there. Um, and... So they were the dominant state uh, or, or sort of group, if you like, um, and they managed to get all the way down to towards what we think of as Naples today, you know, mm-hmm. where Greeks were uh, had moved and had been for a hundred years or so. Um, they're very interesting, interesting. We we um, we do have their script, but as as yet, no one's been able to completely decipher it. So we can't read any of their inscriptions. We don't have any literature. Uh, we do have tomb paintings and uh, other artifacts from their tombs in particular, which are, are stunning. I would encourage your listeners to go and Google just, you know, Etruscan wall paintings or Etruscan tomb paintings because they're they're full of life. They're full of uh, joie de vivre. And, and, and also, mm-hmm. I think um, women tend to have quite prominent roles or they're, or they're certainly not pushed into the background in, in a lot of those images. And artifacts but we don't really know um much about them um by 500 or around 500 the romans seem to start to eclipse them the archaeology would tell us that and the etruscans um the influence dwindles i should say by the way that, i mean the etruscans and the greeks have a huge uh cultural trade um and there's a huge overlap there. And many of those wonderful Greek vases that we have have been found in, in Italy, um, in Italy. having been you know, traded with the Etruscans. Um, and probably a lot of Greek influence on the Romans comes via the Etruscans. Um, so for a very simple example, uh, the Greek god or demigod Heracles is known, obviously, sometimes by his Latin name, which is Hercules. Mm. Um, now, he would have been first encountered in Italy by the Etruscans uh, meeting Greeks talking about Heracles. And I think the uh, the linguists would say that the way that the Etruscan language works, uh, that Heracles would most easily have been re- rendered as Hercle. Um, Hercle. So that, you know, that 
out some of the vowels. And so that's how you go from Heracles to Hercules, but with the Etruscans as the intermediary. Um, I see. So, so you know, the, by the 5th century, they, um, they, the Romans seem to eclipse them, and that's matched in the, in the stories. Later on, Romans have a very ambivalent attitude towards this sort of Etruscan heritage because they, they threw out their kings in, mm. uh, again, as I said, I think 510, they threw out the kings and they set up their new system the following year, or it might be 509. But uh, the last Etruscan king, part of this legend, uh, legendary uh, base is, is Tarquin the Proud. And uh, Tarquin is, uh, archaeologically, that's definitely a, uh, a, an Etruscan name. And there was an earlier Tarquin, the, the fifth king, Tarquin the Proud is the seventh king. So the, the legendary tradition celebrates getting rid of expelling Tarquin the Proud and setting up this new political system, the Republic. And that matches the archaeology to the extent that it's around that time that the Romans seem to eclipse the Etruscans. Right. Well, and let's talk about the other um, great influence on the Romans, which, of course, is the, the Greeks, um, which is also an area of your expertise. And you do a great job in the book of introducing um, the notion of this that begins with uh, the, the Greek colonization of the Mediterranean, the Magna Graecia, I think it's called. Um, and Horace, you have a wonderful phrase from Horace, which I love, that says, captured Greece, captured her savage conqueror. What does that mean, James? And, and how do the Romans view the Greeks? I know that the, um, it's a very complicated relationship that spans many centuries um, and really shapes the culture, particularly of, of the Roman life. Yeah, I guess I, one thing I should say is that Magna Graecia normally, which just means Great Greece, normally ref, is used mm -hmm. to refer to southern Italy and Sicily. Oh, okay. Um, and yes, with my Greek hat on, what we know is that the Greeks from the late 8th century BC, they start to spread out across the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And actually, there's a lovely phrase in Plato. I think Socrates talks about the Greeks being like, like from frogs around a swamp meaning the two mm. seas, and they're dotted all over the place. So, for example, you know, Marseille is founded by Greeks, and Nice, the, 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 city, the French city Nice, just comes from the, the Greek word for victory, Nika. Mm. Um, so uh, the, the Greeks get all over the place, um, but particularly this uh, movement out of mainland Greece and the Aegean happens in southern Italy and in Sicily. So, you know, a city like Syracuse, well, Syracuse and Naples um, are both Greek foundation cities. Uh, I mean, most of the cities in southern Italy, uh, Taranto today, Crotone, um, you know, Reggio di Calabria, where, where the crossing over into Sicily is. I mean, all of these places were uh, established as urban settlements, let us say, um, by Greeks. And that comes all the way up to the Bay of Naples. Uh, I hope some of your listeners have been on holiday to the Bay of Naples, seen all of the, uh, you know, wonderful, uh, things to see there and just at the north side of the bay of naples is about as far north as they got i could spend hours on this it's fascinating but i won't um <laughs> but uh so naples itself which is obviously today a big city it just means neapolis is, is originally neapolis it just means new city that's why we eat ne neapolitan ice cream it's it's uh -huh. it's the ice cream from the new greek city essentially um and what this means and in sicily is is heavily greek as well uh, what this means is that all of that Greek culture that we think of, particularly around the drama, for example, uh, and the philosophy, um, 
all of the ideas um, are really incubating in southern Italy and Sicily as well as in mainland Greece. Um, so that, you know, later on, Archimedes, who's arguably the greatest mathematician in all history, he was one of them, certainly, he, he lives in Syracuse in Sicily. He's Greek uh, and, and killed by a Roman centurion. Very mean. Um, <laughs> but you, so, so a lot of those ideas are coming from southern, southern Italy and Sicily from Magna Graecia. Uh, and of course, that starts to then permeate as the, as the Romans um, expand, become more powerful. They start to absorb those ideas. And then really, that's really from the third century, the late third century. Then in the early second century, they effectively take Greece under their control. I'm not quite going to go for conquer yet. Uh, that does mm. come. Uh, and you get this very strange relationship during the second century in particular, where they have really conquered. They've taken control of Greece and the Greek world. Um, and so on the one hand, the Greeks are their subjects. On the other hand, um, they are these much more cultured people to Roman eyes. And it's not my judgment that. I think that's the Romans, how they saw it. Uh, the Romans had no literature of their own at that point. Um, they, their gods, they have a, a huge mythology attached to them, which is why probably in the third century, the Greek and Roman gods were matched up. That you know, so that Mars, for example, we've already mentioned him. He was an early Roman god of agriculture and warfare, the guy who protected your fields. Essentially, is where those two ideas unite. Uh, and then he's matched up with Ares. Uh, Venus mm. is, is matched up with Aphrodite. So they adopt that mythology. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no Roman literature to speak of by this point. I mean, you're too busy doing other things. Um, and so all of a sudden, you've got the access to the theatre. Uh, you start to get in the, well, really at the start of, of the second century BC, you start to get Roman playwrights. So you get Plautus and Terence, who are writing comedy, comedies and manners, very much in the style of Menander, the Greek playwright, almost translation, some of them. Um, and this carries on where essentially Roman writers just come along and think, ooh, I'm going to try and model myself on an epic poet or I'm going to try and write uh, personal love poetry. Um, the only genre of literature that the Romans claimed to have invented, probably rightly, is, is literary satire. Um, mm -hmm. So there's someone called Lucilius who's living towards the end of the second century BC, um, who's writing satirical poems about you know the upper class society at the top of Rome that he's living in. But probably even then, some of the ideas and the, the formulation of the literature is influenced by Greece. So we've got we've got all of that from a literature point of view, from a, a religious and mythology point of view, um, but also art and architecture as well. I mean, there's a huge influx of of art uh, or, or of statues. Uh, very many of the really famous statues we have from the Greek world. Uh, today are actually Roman copies of Greek originals. So in a sense, we can be very thankful mm. for that. Uh, we don't have that many early Greek statues, but we've got lots of later copies of them. Um, so their relationship is a very kind of uneasy one. And the, the Horace quote is, is very good. Um, captured Greece, captured her savage conqueror, that the Romans felt both superior and inferior at the same time, I think. And am I right in thinking that the um, the Romans regard the Greeks after a certain amount of time as slightly too sensual, rather, you know, lacking in virtue? 
Um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, that that's a motif. It's a card that gets played. You know, when you teach this stuff, oh. you, you, you become a bit cynical, I'm afraid. So, <laughs> again, we're back to the thing about the good old days. And I think if right. you look at any society, you've always got people saying it was so much better in the good old days. Um, and there's this guy called Cato the Elder in the second century um, BC, who, who's really the embodiment of that. And he's appalled by this idea that this new education system, that was another thing that the Greeks did, you know, children learning literature and music and stuff like that, far too soft uh, for Cato's <laughs> liking. He wanted his son to be jumping over rivers and, and building tents and whatever else. Um, and he was saying, you know, that's, that's what made us the city we are. Um, now he's probably talking rubbish I'm afraid I don't know that but you know he plays it up and then there are others who are uh, much happier to be you know to absorb the new learning so Scipio Africanus this famous I mean a great warrior who um, eventually defeated Hannibal in you know in 202 BC so you couldn't on one hand you, you couldn't get more Roman than Scipio Africanus he's the guy who puts down Hannibal um but he is accused again around that time in about 205 BC, I think, of, of being too Greek. Oh, he was off in Sicily and he was hanging around and, you know, he was doing his hair too much and getting his body oiled <laughs> and all this kind of soft stuff that the Greeks are responsible for. So, um, yes, you're right. I think that that uh, that's how the Greeks were seen. And it was it was an easy way to put them down. Um, and it was an easy way to kind of insult someone not being Roman enough. You're a bit too Greek. But of course, I guess there's an implicit, perhaps an implicit compliment there as well. That goes alongside, you know, being well groomed and, uh, and that kind of thing. It is perhaps being a little bit more civilized and a bit more educated and a bit more thoughtful. And what, what are the typical Roman values and, and virtues that, that they use to separate themselves from the Greeks? And, and maybe talk to a little talk to us a little bit about how some of the more famous citizens or or rulers embody or don't embody um, or reject these these virtues. Yeah, I mean the, the the collective term for them is something called the mos maiorum, uh, which means the customs of our ancestors. And we are back to the good old days again. I'm sorry. We, whenever we talk early Roman we history, we're back, to, back the to the good old days. days. And it, but the, that's the phrase, the customs of our ancestors. Yeah. And it's sort of simplicity, honesty, hard work, being honorable, all the things that we would think are actually good qualities, basically, in any society. Um, so there was lots of, of kind of going back to the good old days. And, and as I say, probably creating or embellishing your early legends to have lots of moral examples. So, you know, very, very famous example is um, Cincinnatus, who your Ohio listeners will hopefully particularly be aware of because <laughs> some of his followers called themselves the, the Cincinnati, uh, the followers of Cincinnatus. Um, and he, if we believe this early Roman set of legend, uh, he was someone who'd, who'd had a great military career. And when he retired, he wasn't interested in having a Facebook profile or being on TV or anything like that. He just wanted to go back to his farm uh, and to mm -hmm. farm his farm, you know, a small farm across the Tiber, simple, humble, honest, working on the land. And then there was this huge military crisis and the Romans were about to, Rome, the city was about to get um, invaded and by its enemies and they said they decided you know only Cincinnatus can save us and so they went and begged him to come out of retirement 
And he, he donned his toga and he led them to victory in 16 days. And then what does he do? Again, he doesn't do any interviews for the New York Times or whoever else um, <laughs> or, you know, whatever else. He doesn't go on Celebrity Big Brother. He goes back to his farm um, and he starts mm-hmm. farming again because that's what he wants to do. Now, it's a wonderful morality tale. I think we need to be pretty careful about believing how much, you know, that is a literal truth. There might have been some person on whom that's based. Um but that's a really good example, I think, of those early qualities that they liked to look to. Um, how much are actually people um, abiding by them? Oh, dearie me. I mean, it's like kind of saying that in any culture, isn't it? You know, and are people, you know, doing it for show or are they really abiding by it? I mean, there was a, you know, so Cato the Younger, we've mentioned the older one, Cato the Younger one, who was. The younger is about, I think, his great-grandson or something, and he's a vicious opponent of, of Julius Caesar, vicious as in very, very uh, animated. Um, and he, when he realises the game is up for him during the Civil Wars, he decides that he's going to take his own life, which was a, 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 something which in, in extreme circumstances was acceptable for Romans, and he does it by pulling his own guts out, you know, because that is the way to do it, as a, like a man. So, you know, he, he, but he, he sort of takes it to a, to the nth degree and, and he was a parody, you know, people laughed at him for being so into all of this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. my general, um, approach would be to say, well, it's probably much like any society. We have aspirations for what the best sort of human behavior might be. Um, and there's a huge spectrum of, of how people respond to that. Right. I want to come back to a phrase you just used about Cincinnatus, which is he put his toga on. Mm. What does it mean to put on your toga? Oh, yes. That's a good question. I, I mean, I think that's that's um, an interesting way to think about um, the idea of Roman citizenship. And I wonder if you could talk about what it meant to be a Roman citizen. Um, and how did people feel in the conquered parts of the empire? Well, very, very good. Lots of good questions there. I mean, to put your toga on, I think for him, he was going to go and speak to the Senate. So that was like sort of, I don't know, being mm-hmm. being called to, to the US Senate or the House of Representatives and you put your best suit on. Um, but you're right. We don't even know if in uh, Cincinnati's time in the mid fifth century, they'd even invented the toga. So again, that's another example of, of, of kind of, you know, if we talked about, I don't know, someone in Elizabethan England putting on his best suit and tie, we might be scratching our head. Um, and I think it is possibly the same thing, but the toga was very much the kind of formal dress of, of a Roman citizen, as you say, and in the Aeneid, um, the, I think Jupiter, perhaps I'm going to get that wrong, but, but the, the Romans are referred to as the togaed people. So it was a form of dress, which really marked them out as being distinct. Now, citizenship is very interesting. Um, as has happened pretty much in every culture, it's it's much debated and argued over who should have citizenship. And we should start by saying that, of course, women didn't have citizenship and we have a huge slave population. So we should hold all of those people think, um, who don't get any citizenship. Um, probably early Rome had a similar approach to citizenship as the early Greek cities, as Athens and Sparta, which is that if you live in the city and you are born a free man, then by the time you become an adult, you are a citizen and you will have certain rights and responsibilities. That really expands. I mean, one of the reasons that this political system, the Republic, eventually ends up collapsing into the empire is that um, the 
that is issues over citizenship. So by the second century, Rome is in control of most of peninsular Italy. Um, and but it's it's not really an empire at that point in, in the sort of conventional sense that a lot of the southern Italians are allies. They're allies who do what they're told, essentially. Mm-hmm. And particularly they provide troops for the Roman army. Um, mm-hmm. So a city like Pompeii, for example, which some of your listeners would have been would have been to, that was an ally. It wasn't actually technically part of the sort of formal Roman state. Uh, well, these allies all revolted in the about 90, 91, I think, BC. It was a big war. Um, and the Allies lose but win the argument because they then get given it's all over citizenship. They're saying, why are we fighting and don't we don't have full citizen rights? So so they actually lose the war but win the argument because within 10 years mm-hmm. they are given citizenship. And again, I think Mary Beard makes the point that uh that's probably as close as we get to the nation state in ancient in the ancient world. The idea mm-hmm. that really most of Italy at that point, if you're a free man, you are a citizen. Um, and it really moves the idea. It's, remember, it's still called Roman citizenship, but you can be from Pompeii and have never been to Rome, and you can have Roman citizenship. And that's a really novel idea. Um, it's something we, you know, might feel more familiar with today. But you know, in the ancient world, citizenship is tied to where the place where you live, the immediate place where you live. And it was really the Romans who moved it away. Uh, to saying that citizenship is um, uh, much less about geographical location and more about signing up to a set of rights and responsibilities. So that eventually, as the empire increases, you know, we have citizens in Britain, we have citizens in Iraq, we have citizens in in Egypt. Um, And it's about, you know, the rights you get, you get many more privileges. Famous Roman citizen, of course, was St. Paul. Um, the reason that he wasn't crucified, like like Peter, for example, was that as a Roman citizen, he was uh, allowed to be beheaded, you know, which was a mm. much swifter death. Uh, and he had other rights around his his trial as well. Uh, so I should I haven't forgotten your question about how do people feel about that. We come up to that in a minute, but just to finish it, I mean, we get this extraordinary edict in about two hundred and fifteen, where I think all three men in the empire are made citizens which for an instant sounds like a very enlightened moment until you work out that it's all about getting a bigger tax revenue. Um, mm-hmm. And presumably citizenship itself, you know, was devalued by that. Um, but I think that idea that citizenship is not, it, it is about a set of values rather than a specific small geographical location. That, that is something that the Romans invent, if you like, as an idea. I might be wrong on that. I'm wrong every day. But I can't think. Of, <laughs> I can't think of another uh, ancient civilization where has it anything like that extent. How do people feel uh, about? Do you want me to just answer that about how? how to, no, no, no. Uh, yes, please. I just I, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that um, you know in Byzantium, which isn't a word that, that the people who were living in that time even knew about, they would consider themselves Romans. Even if they had never been to Rome, yeah, uh, even absolutely. in the 13th, 14th century. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the, the Roman Empire, this is a very important point to make, is that it does not collapse in the 5th century AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a myth. It collapses in the 15th century AD. What happens is that the Western Empire, which of course we think of as the Roman Empire, collapses. The Eastern Empire lives on, as you say, through 
well, what was originally Byzantium, then it became Constantinople in 330, I think, and then it becomes Istanbul after 1453. But you're absolutely right. The people living in Constantinople in 1453, which is sacked by the Ottomans, they call themselves, they speak in Greek, living in what we think of today as Turkey, uh, and they, you know, a city straddling Asia and Europe, and they call themselves Romaioi, Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea of Romanness, it, it was completely divorced from, from Rome at that point, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. So there we go. I, I should ask there you a go. question about, you know, how do yes. other people feel about it? And we don't know. I mean, that's a great question. Um, we just don't know, have the source evidence. You know, you can imagine that um, lots of Congo peoples were, were not very happy, to put it mildly. Uh, although probably in other places, the Romans did bring some stability. They they improved the trade routes and, and that kind of thing. So I don't think we can make one uniform statement, except to say we just don't have much source evidence for how Congo peoples felt. There's a very famous piece in Tacitus, back to him again, um, in his biography of his uh, father-in-law, Agricola, who was uh, governor of Roman Britain in the 70s AD. And he fights a battle up in Scotland somewhere. No one's ever been able to locate where this is, but it's called the Battle of Mons Graupius. And um, he puts a speech into the words of this Scottish leader, um, which he could never have known what this guy would have said. Um, you know, he wouldn't have had the interpreters, more or less of it. But essentially, he puts the opposition to Rome, the the, the argument against Rome, um, into the mouth of this character, uh, Calgus, who loses very bravely and nobly in this battle, um, who, you know, talks about what a bunch of hypocrites they are and they say what peace builders they are, uh, and it's nonsense. And there's this very famous phrase, they create a desolation and they call it peace. So, you know, that's... That's heartbreaking. Well, you know, it's it's an offer at another perspective, but that's written by, you know, the Roman historian Tacitus. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's being imaginative and trying to imagine what uh, a a conquered chief might have said. Um, But we would love to know more. Well, let's move on from the conquered to the conquerors, um, because I'm conscious we, we're, um, you know, we only have a limited amount sure. of time. But I do want to be sure we we um, make some acquaintance with some of the more famous Romans that you cover in the book. Um, and I'd like to start with Julius Caesar and just ask you one question: um, Is he a product of his age, or is he a magnificent exception to it? Oh, oh I, I can't give you one or the other there. I mean, okay. he's certainly, he was certainly a man for his moment. Um, mm-hmm. And he was a very brilliant and brutal and awful, in many ways, man for his moment. Um, so this Republican system, we haven't got time to go into the details, but it was collapsing. It had been going on for uh-huh. hundreds of years. It had been somewhat stable. It was essentially a kind of oligarchy with some democratic elements in, in it. Um, but essentially, it, you know, historians, and these are where you need to find Sherpas to take you further, but historians argue about why it collapses, and there are various different factors. Probably the fact that they go from being a relatively small city-state to running the whole of the Mediterranean in 200 years or so has a big factor on this. And you've got lots of corruption amongst this rather small oligarchy. And so you you get military leaders coming in saying, I could do this job better. And on one 
you know, since they were probably right. So Julius Caesar wasn't the first of his type. We have someone called Sulla, uh, who's mm-hmm. dictator in 80. Uh, Julius <clears throat> Caesar's father-in-law, Marius, had done something pretty similar even before that. Um, but Julius Caesar was the one who, if you like, cut the Republic dead for good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he burst through that system. He conquered what we think of as France and Belgium and Holland today with extraordinary brutality. Pliny the Elder, I think, gives the, the Latin phrase that he talks about is almost translates to a crime against humanity. Um, and I think one estimate I've seen is that he may have been responsible for up to one million deaths. Um, so we shouldn't have any illusions about, you know, this guy. He was very, very brutal as well. Uh, he was a brilliant military tactician and general, um, but you didn't want to cross him. Um, um, so yeah, he, he is a brilliant mind. I mean, someone I respect hugely, a lifelong classics teacher who was on my podcast show recently and, and, you know, a very civilized woman. And I said to her, who would you most like to meet from the ancient world? Uh, and why? And she said, well, Julius Caesar, cause you're either pro or anti and I'm pro. Um, oh, wow. okay. so, you know, he probably still divides opinion. Um, but, um, he does do some, you know, some things which I think have had a lasting impact. And he did try to improve things, mainly for his own political agenda, for, for the working people. Um, mm-hmm. He obviously has a massive impact on the, the calendar, just one thing. We use almost the same calendar as that he commissioned um, mm-hmm. with a, a small modification, I think, in the 17th century, maybe the 16th century. Sixteenth, um, sixteenth, Pope Gregory, Gregory right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think we today would would you know th- some people would say, well, he's a war criminal, and and it's hard right. in some ways to argue against that, apart from to say, well, that was the culture, and that's what people were expected to be. Yes, and in your book, I mean, you're you're very uh, you're very good at staying objective, but I do get a sense that you vastly prefer Caesar's nephew Augustus, um, <laughs> <laughs> who who has a longer reign and and arguably a more significant one. And he famously says that he found Rome built of bricks and leaves her clothed in marble. But that's just one thing that he did. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to us talk us through Augustus's extraordinary rise and really remarkable reign. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I'd be a bit cautious about saying that I prefer him because ah, he, okay. I, again, we have to be careful not to drink the propaganda too much. That's Augustus would be thrilled to hear us say that. And uh-huh. certainly he starts his life as Octavian and, and uh, it's only after that he wins the civil war, he takes hold command of the Roman empire. He becomes really the first emperor, although he's trying to hide the fact that he's got sole power. Um, that he presents himself as this great peace builder and this really lovely guy. Um, I'll actually just read out for you a little section um, of a, a prescription uh, list or, or, or instruction that uh, he and two other uh, rulers, Antony and, and Lepidus, uh, had uh, set up in about 42. But when he was still Octavian, when he didn't want to see be seen as a peace builder, he says uh, May fortune then bless our proclamation that no one is to harbour or conceal any of the persons listed below in this register or to arrange to convey them anywhere else or be induced by payment to do so. If any person is discovered to have saved, assisted or been privy to information about them, we regard such a person as one of the proscribed 
and we exclude the possibility of excuse or pardon. The killers are to bring the heads of their victims to us. For each, a free man will receive 25,000 denarii, which is a huge sum, and a slave will receive his personal freedom, 10,000 denarii, and Roman citizenship for his master. The same will hold for informers, and to preserve anonymity, the the names of none of those wards will be noted in our records. So this is what's going on in 42 in the aftermath of the assassination. And Cicero Mm -hmm. is someone who gets killed at this point. He's very brutal as well. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's only when he's won that he can change his image to being the the peace builder, the man who brought peace. And and he could claim that he did do that. I mean, I think in many ways he did bring peace to the Roman world. He set up the system of emperor of one man rule. That's the first emperor, really, is Augustus. Um, Uh He is very, very interested in culture. Um, We get this extraordinary flourishing of writers around this time. We get Horace and Virgil and Ovid and uh, Tibullus, and I'm forgetting one or two others. Livy is writing history around this time. Um, And we get a flourishing of writing and literature then that we don't see any time other in in Roman history. Um, So... um, he is very important, and I think it's important to remember that he didn't know at the time whether he was going to survive. He was worried that he was going right. to be assassinated like Julius Caesar was. Um, you know, it was all very precarious for a long time. So the fact that he did win through and give Rome this structure and, uh, and this stability is an extraordinary achievement. He is very, very mm-hmm. important, um, but I wouldn't want to sugarcoat quite how brutal he was in the first half of his life. And to a lesser extent, all of it. A good propagandist. Oh, he's a brilliant propagandist. He's the best. Yeah. Because the thing is that, you know, most other rulers uh, want that they want to be strongmen. They're in it for the ego. And I'm sure there's something of that with Augustus, but it takes a special sort of ruler to, to basically say, I want to be in charge, but I want to hide that fact. I want to make it look mm-hmm. like I've restored the old Republic, but, but I just want to be the puppet master. So he right. was actually interested in having power, presumably because he thought he could do a better job than anyone else. Um, But it wasn't an ego trip. And, of course, we see many leaders, ancient and modern, dare we say, for whom power is about boosting the ego, Mm -hmm. I think. I think so too, for sure. Um, No no study of Rome is complete without uh, thinking about the arrival of the Christians. And in fact, Rome is, is still this, the beating heart of Christianity today. Um, and Augustus's life kind of coincides with that of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Christian cult soon after Augustus's death becomes a significant presence in Rome. Uh, you have a wonderful section in your book on uh, religion in Rome. And you make the point that the Romans are, by and large, pretty tolerant of foreign sects with the exception of Christianity. And I wonder if you could explain why that is and why the Christians come in for so much abuse um, in Rome. Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful about whether they do all the time throughout the Mm -hmm. two or 300 years before it becomes an official religion. And I think also we should say that that they they have issues with Judaism as well. Um, Mm. Essentially, what unites Christianity and Judaism for the Romans is that Romans are very happy to accept other religions as long as their religion is accepted back. A famous example would be in Bath in England uh, and the local springs there, sort of holy sacred springs, 
are sacred to the Celtic goddess Sulis. And so the Romans come along and say, you know what, we're going to build a beautiful bath complex. Your goddess Sulis sounds jolly like our goddess Minerva. Um, so we'll call it the Sanctuary of Sulis Minerva. Um, and they, that's actually to their great credit, that they, they weren't exclusivists. Um, they kind of thought, you know, it's, it's all the same thing by different names. Um, and so as long as you respect our gods, we'll respect your gods and we'll work like that. Of course, that comes into difficulty when you have a kind of monotheistic religion which says there's only one God. Um, so um, why do Christians get persecuted? I mean, you know, the, the earliest evidence is in 64 when we have the fire in Rome. This is the first non-biblical reference to Christians by Tacitus. And um, the Nero makes the Christians a scapegoat for this fire and he became unpopular after it. So um, they, you know, it was easy to kind of portray them as this very weird cult. You know, they're cannibals because they eat the body and the blood of their master, you know, stuff like that, which if you don't understand what Christianity is about, you you know, that's what you would say. Uh, And Mm -hmm. believing in a new kingdom sounds like it's um, trying to overthrow the emperors. so they were a convenient scapegoat, I think, and and they uh, because they weren't prepared to recognise the Roman gods, you know that was that was very problematic. Um, and really, basically, what happens throughout Roman history in the next two hundred years is when times get tough, is there's a plague, let's have a go at the Christians. But there are other areas mm-hmm. where probably Christians are quietly allowed to get on with things. Right, and as you say, it's about three centuries until the famous. Um moment when Emperor Constantine decides to fight under the Christian banner. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one moment kind of forever changes European history. There seems to be a lot of confusion as to why he made that decision. Um, and I wonder if you have a, a theory. No, no, that's where I hand over to the Sherpas again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the problem is you can't, you're doing it, we don't know. Um, and unless uh, we get more evidence, we won't be able to form an opinion uh, the problem is, of course, that today people come at that with a whole set of agendas. So uh, those who mm-hmm. wish Constantine to have been this very, very pious person who had a conversion, you know, through Christ, um, an overnight conversion, you know, that it suits their narrative. People who kind of see him as this cynical politician would say, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I just that you know, factually, we should be careful. He doesn't make what happens at this battle in 312 at the Milvian Bridge is, you know, there's two different versions one written a few years later, one written 20-odd years later by a Christian bishop. Um, The following year, he doesn't make Christianity the official religion. He makes it an official religion of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. He himself didn't Christianity until he was on his deathbed in 336, so that's 24 years later. Um, And he's still issuing coins with the sun god image on it i, I believe mm-hmm. after that so you know even if he does convert it's it's a lifelong journey i think he's a fascinating character it is extraordinary that his predecessor but one i think also is diocletian who oversaw the last great persecution of the christians in the in the 290s and early 300s uh, and within 10 years christianity is an official religion and within 20 years it's become the main religion with with constantine you know setting up churches and building basilicas and things. right so it's a mystery 
You know, it's, we it don't is, know why. It, I think it will, and I think it will remain a mystery. I think unless we get more sources, I, I think Constantine and Augustus are the two most definitive uh, uh, rulers in in Roman history, without doubt. For me, and it's all downhill from there for the Western Empire, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> right. well, you know, who knows? Um, who you know, knows? some people would say that the movement into uh, more, you know, nation states, um, you know, moves things forward. Um, and we have to be careful with this idea of barbarians. That was originally a Greek word to mean non-Greeks. It often was a rude word, but it didn't have to be. Herodotus opens oh. his history talking about wanting to record that the, the wonderful deeds um, both by Greeks and by barbarians. So there is always a strand of thought thinking that the other is capable of great things as well. Um, right. So these, when, when we think of barbarians, I don't think we should be thinking of savages at all. I mean, mm-hmm. they, all, they may have been savage, but so were the Romans. Um, and so, you know, the, the poor old vandals have got a terrible name. You know, we still talk about vandalism. Um, they were probably no more vandalizing than the Romans ever were, frankly. Um, Indeed. And, and these people, they don't just come in in a sort of savage culture. Many of them are very Romanized. They, uh, adopt Roman culture and, and, and values. I mean, after Rome properly falls in, I think, 476, the Roman Empire in the West, we have the kingdom of the Italians in northern Italy, and we get this great Christian scholar, Boethius, um, who's writing mm. there. There's lots of, you know, another big academic debate is to what extent is it just, you know, the same sort of culture with, with different um, nation states and that kind of thing. Um, but um, you know, maybe it was a natural course of history. Maybe it wasn't a kind of mm-hmm. terrible collapse, although I think economically there was a collapse at that time. Right. Oh, wow. What a story. Indeed. <laughs> um, I'm afraid that's kind of all we have time that's for fine. today, but I do want to ask you one more question, if I may. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people, particularly, I, I think in America, the classics are on the wane. Um, I have a niece who's who's gotten a very nice scholarship to continue to study Greek and, and Latin at the college level, but um, there's a sense that that this is no longer relevant um, in our kind of digital age. You clearly don't agree with that premises, um, and and to counteract it, you've created these amazing portals for students and and all all the curious to explore ancient Greece and Rome. And I, I wonder if you just finish by kind of capsulizing for us what you feel the value is of a classical education in today's um, reality. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful with this phrase, classical education, actually, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, both Greece and Rome have been used and mined by later cultures to say, oh, weren't they great and we want to be like them. And they take the best bits and ignore the worst bits. Uh, and also, you know, there's lots of preferencing that somehow they were more enlightened civilizations, whereas, you know, the Persians are fascinating, for example. We just know much more about the Greeks and the Romans. So let's stick with the Romans. We just know much more about them. We wish we had Persian historians, for example. So I think that that's one reason why they're very interesting, because we can really get stuck into them deeply in a way that we can't with actually more modern historical societies, you know, the medieval Europe, for example. Um, That would be my first reason. I think my second reason would be whether you like them, whether you loathe them, they're important. Um, they've had a huge influence in terms of, of history, of culture, of language. 
Um, and so you don't have to like the Romans, and we shouldn't necessarily like the Romans or admire them, but we should study them because they have been important. Mm-hmm. And I think my final thought, and perhaps you know, one to throw out as we finish, is that how do we think about history? Um, we're having lots of debates at the moment about um, teaching the slave trade, for example, in both the United mm. Kingdom and in the, in the USA. Um, and I think that what you get with studying the Romans is that you get a culture which is unbearably savage and yet in other ways produces people and ideas which are, you know, which are brilliant. And I think people find that really difficult in history. And when they're talking about cultures, they want people to be either goodies or baddies. Mm. Um, And I think with the Romans that we really have to engage with the fact that they produce Virgil and Ovid and wonderful art. And yet they produce people who go and, you know, murder and, 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 you know, commit genocide and uh, slavery and, and things which are horrendous. Um, mm. And I think the task of a historian is, is to try and hold those two ideas you know, together. It's really troubling. It's much easier to say, oh, they were good or, oh, they were bad. Mm-hmm. But, oh, they were both, um, I think is the way that everyone should approach history. I think when cultures think about their own history and religions uh, and countries, that should be the starting point. You know, our culture has done great things. Our culture has done appalling things. And we're going to get to grips with both of them and hold them together. I think that's the way forward for history studying. And I think Rome really builds that mental muscle, actually. Um, And so I think Rome is a great um, subject to do history with and and think about how to do history with. Well, your book certainly gives us a lot to to chew over and and is very thought-provoking. Before I let you go, can I ask you what, what you're working on now or what's next for you? Oh, yeah. I'm having a bit of a fallow period at the moment. Um, oh. I'm just enjoying. I mean, this came out in, in December last year, and it's been been quite an interesting period uh, <laughs> since then, obviously, for the world. Um, yeah, so I'm doing sort of more local projects. I'm quite involved with uh, A-level ancient history at the moment over here uh, and trying to set up a, a more of a teacher network in case we have a, another lockdown next year. Mm. Uh, and I'm doing one or two small things with my publisher Bloomsbury and I've got one or two ideas for, for things that might come next. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, having a, a little bit of a rest from, from the writing uh-huh. and seeing what else comes. Well, I hope, I hope that when you um, come up with the next in search book, um, maybe in search of the Persians, that would be great. Yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. That would be fantastic. Um, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it. I'd love um, to. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you. Um, where else can um, people find out more about you? Um, well, I mean, the Bloomsbury Academic website has got a good uh, page, profile page on the book, if you want to find out there. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter. I don't tend to use it terribly much. Um, Americans might be confused by the fact that I follow so many cricketers. Um, but uh, at J.A.J. Renshaw, I'm on Twitter. Um, and uh, I think those are probably the main ways. Great. Well, we'll link all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much. Um, the book, once, once again, is In Search of the Romans, and I've been speaking with James Renshaw. Thank you so much for joining us, James. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, and thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. I am your host, Jennifer Yerimeva. Tune in next time for another discussion with an author about a new book. Thanks for listening.